Hello, I'm Mike Lindell, inventor of my pillow, here to tell you about my Giza Dream bed sheets. I made sure that they would be everything you'd ever want in a sheet set. I started with the world's finest cotton called Giza. It's only grown in a region where the Sahara Desert, the Nile River, and the Mediterranean Sea all meet. The long staple cotton makes my Giza Dream sheets ultra soft and durable. They come with extra wide pillowcases to fit over any pillow and extra deep pockets to fit over any mattress. Not only that, they come with my 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. And now you can get the best sheets ever for the best price ever. When you buy one of my Giza Dream bed sheet sets, you'll get another one absolutely free. I personally guarantee that they'll be the most comfortable sheets you'll ever own. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the Radio Listener Specials for the buy one, get one free offer on Giza Sheets. All you got to do, Renegade Nation, is enter the promo code RENEGADE or call 1-800-889-6817 for these great specials. That's 1-800-889-6817. Use the promo code RENEGADE. Please be aware, the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be considered disturbing, frightening, and in some cases, even offensive. Listener discretion is therefore advised. Welcome, heathens. Welcome to the world of the weird and unexplained. I am your host, Nicole Delacroix, and together we will be investigating stories about the things that go bump in the night. Monsters lurking under your bed or deep in the forest. That unknown creature lurking just out of sight. Frighteningly imagined creatures, ghosts, supernatural beings, and even some unsolved mysteries. So, sit back, grab your favorite drink, and prepare to be transported to today's Dark Enigma. And on today's Dark Enigma, well, we've made it to my very favorite time of the year. I love October! I love Halloween! So, for the first episode of this glorious month, it's a twofer! So I hope you guys are ready for it! All right. With that said, we will still be playing our drinking game. And as you know, the drinking game is only for those of us that are at home and have nowhere else to go tonight. Drink responsibly. The choice of libation is yours, my darlings. So choose your poison accordingly. All right. Now for the game part. How about every time I say ghost or murder. That will be a single shot. And every time I say Kentucky or England, that's going to be a double shot. Those could not be further away from each other, right? I love it. Now that we have our business end out of the way, we can jump headfirst into today's dark enigma. And for today's twofer, it's going to be my favorite things. Well, After aliens, because you know aliens are my favorites. Ghosts and witches. That's right. I love me some ghosts. I love me some witches. Of course, aliens are still first in my heart. Of course, because I am an alien. Anyways, so our first story today is the tale of the murderous ghost of the chain strangler. And when we finish that, we'll move on to 
The Murder and Mystery at the Witch Elm. Ha! Interesting! Well, let's jump right on in, my darlings, because it's a big one. Ghosts are certainly scary enough as it is. Even scarier is ghosts that can lash out and do actual harm. And even more frightening than that is a ghost that can kill. Although murderous ghosts have long been the realm of horror films, within the world of the paranormal, it is actually quite rare for these apparitions to actually kill you. But it's not exactly unheard of. For whatever reasons, it seems that some spirits are more malevolent than most and have the terrifying ability to reach out to not only frighten, but also to inflict death. One such case comes to us from the great state of Kentucky, where a vengeful spirit of a killer in life is said to have also become a killer in death. It was an otherwise quiet night in Pulaski County, Kentucky, in 1938, when a carpenter by the name of Carl Pruitt was heading home after a hard day of work. Tired and hungry, he expected to find his loving wife cooking dinner for him and welcoming him with open arms as usual. Upon arriving home, though, Pruitt did not see his wife anywhere, and he made his way to the bedroom where he found her, well, welcoming someone else with open arms. Well, it's no surprise that he would be shocked to catch his wife cheating on him with another man in their very room. What might be more surprising was the horrifying way in which he dealt with it. Pruitt lunged at both of the lovers, but the man was able to escape through a window. Faced with his frightened wife cowering on the bed before him, Pruitt, in a fit of rage, fetched a length of chain and proceeded to vengefully wrap it around her neck to brutally choke her to death. Perhaps realizing the grim deed he had just done, Pruitt would then commit suicide with a pistol shot to the head shortly thereafter. In the aftermath of this vicious murder-suicide, the dead wife's family demanded that the couple not be buried together, and Pruitt's body was buried far away in another town. And this is where things get, well, noticeably bizarre. In the weeks after Pruitt's burial, it was noticed by both visitors and caretakers alike that the headstone had become strangely discolored, with rings appearing that seemed to be almost etched into the stone and interlinked, as if to make the shape of a chain. The patch of grass covering his grave was also claimed to have odd dead patches in the shape of rings that overlapped each other like a chain, and the whole thing was rather spooky indeed, considering the way in which the dead man had killed his wife. The chain allegedly got longer over time, eventually forming what appeared to be the shape of a cross, until unsettled locals requested that the headstone be replaced and the grave regrassed, but skeptical authorities declined to do so. 
News of the strange markings at the grave of the one who had become known as the Chain Strangler circulated until morbid curiosity seekers were coming from all over the region to get a peek at the weird site. And no one could really quite explain what was causing the phenomena. Of course, with so many people pouring in to check the bizarre scene out, there were bound to be some troublemakers in their midst. One came in the form of a local boy named James Collins, who allegedly rode to the Pruitt grave one night with a group of friends. Well aware of the spooky stories surrounding the grave and headstone, James is said to have defiantly lobbed a large rock at the headstone, which chipped a piece off of it much to the amusement of his friends. As they were riding home, James's bike purportedly began to inexplicably pick up speed, and he lost control and crashed into a tree. Bizarrely, the chain of the bicycle is said to have flung off to somehow wrap itself around his neck and strangle him to death. When his friends went to look at the, the grave later on, it was claimed that although they had clearly seen James break the headstone with a rock, no damage could be found on it. Spooky. The whole strange story began making the rounds in the rumor mill with whispers of phantoms, curses, and ghosts until everyone was attributing the freak death to the vengeful spirit of Pruitt. James's mother apparently was so saddened and infuriated by her son's death and the dark stories pervading it that she took an axe and went to Pruitt's grave in order to deface it, seriously damaging it and smashing it to pieces with the weapon in a rage. According to the tale, though, several days later, she was out hanging laundry when she slipped and became ensnared in the clothesline, which wrapped around her neck as she dangled above the ground and strangled her to death. Some reports on this incident say that the clothesline was a thin chain rather than the usual rope or wire. Allegedly, although an axe was found that had been dented up by striking rock and was covered in rock dust, and although everyone claimed that she had gone out to destroy Pruitt's grave, the headstone itself was purportedly found to be perfectly intact, not even so much as a scratch upon it. The strange deaths associated with Pruitt's seemingly cursed grave would not stop there. Not long after the death of the Collins' mother, a farmer was passing by the cemetery in a horse-drawn carriage with his family. As they passed Pruitt's headstone, the father began to boast that the whole story was a bunch of hogwash and apparently drew his pistol to fire at the headstone. He supposedly hit it several times, sending chunks of rock flying, and at that point the horses suddenly became panicked and launched into a mad dash. Because, you know... When you shoot a gun, you should make sure there's not horses around, because guess what? They get scared. Although the family managed to jump to, f to safety, the father hung on trying to rein the horses in and get them under control. As the horses careened around a bend at a dangerous clip, the farmer said to have been thrown from the carriage, and in the process, his neck somehow got caught in one of the trace chains. The farmer's neck was broken, and he died instantly. Once again, inspection of the headstone showed no signs of the damage inflicted by the pistol. The death of the farmer renewed talk and rumors about the cursed grave of Carl Pruitt, 
and rather than flock to the grave to see it for themselves, most people increasingly opted to stay well away from it. Two police officers, perhaps humoring the local populace, went to the grave to investigate the stories. While they were there, they apparently took pictures of themselves in front of the grave and for the most part didn't take much of it seriously. As they were leaving, thoroughly unconvinced that this was all any more than a spooky campfire tale, a ball of light is said to have started following their patrol car. The cops, now starting to get a little creeped out, tried to speed away from the ghostly light, and at some point they apparently lost control of the vehicle. The car then shot off of the road and smashed into some fences, and while one of the officers was thrown safely from the vehicle to suffer only minor injuries, well, you guessed it, the other one was not quite so lucky. Allegedly, one of the chains between the fence posts ended up catching him on the neck, breaking it and practically decap decapitating the officer in the process. The one who was killed was allegedly the one who had suggested taking photos and had been supposedly laughing about the whole legend while they had been at the cemetery. The death of the police officer really cemented the idea that the grave was truly cursed and haunted with a bloodthirsty ghost in the minds of most, but even still there were many who were just not convinced. One such person was a man by the name of Arthur Lewis. He had long scoffed at the story and claimed it was all silly nonsense. And one night he went out to the cemetery to prove it. Lewis told everyone he meant to destroy the grave, went out to Pruitt's headstone with a hammer and a chisel, and purportedly went to work dismantling it. When he didn't return, some locals went out to look for the man and found him dead near the cemetery gates. It appeared as though the chain from the gates had been used to strangle him to death, perhaps as he was leaving or because he had been running from something. Although the hammer and chisel were found to have been used to bash away at rock, of course, the headstone itself was unmarred. Some spookier versions of this incident claimed that some people had heard the bangs of the hammer on stone and then a terrified scream which had prompted them to go and investigate but that sounds like people adding to a tall tale. When a strip mining company came in the 1950s to purchase the land the cemetery sat on, it had become an abandoned, weed-choked place that no one dared to go. Indeed, many had decided to move their loved ones' graves, and there had been practically no new burials in the notoriously haunted spot. The mining company went about exhuming and relocating the remaining graves, and all of the headstones were moved as well. It's unclear what became of Pruitt's headstone, though. Some versions of the, so the story say it was destroyed and disposed of, and others say it just sort of disappeared or was moved with the others. Although, no one seems to be quite sure exactly where it ended up. What seems certain is that the mysterious deaths stopped with the destruction of the cemetery, and apparently there are still those in the area who insist that the whole story was in fact true. So, is there anything to this, or is it just spooky tales woven around a series of coincidental freak deaths? Is this all creepy urban legend, or a genuine case of something from beyond our realm pushing past the boundaries between worlds to kill. Whatever the case may be with the chain strangler ghost and Pruitt's 
cursed grave, it is certainly not the only alleged case of death by ghost. Are there entities that can kill, and why do they do that? Of course, I guess you could ask, why do people kill to begin with? And if they are killing us, how do they do it? I mean, reality or not, stories of murderous ghosts continue to be a scary yet oddly intriguing phenomena. All right, guys. Now it's time for our double feature. Bom, bom, bom. I really need some spooky music. Somebody bring me some spooky music. I need it. All right. Now we're going to delve into murder and mystery at the Witch Elm. There are few things that capture the imagination quite as much as a dark and mysterious unsolved murder. Throughout history, we have seen such inexplicable deaths call out across the inexorable passage of time to taunt and befuddle those who would pick through the past for remaining clues and vestiges of evidence looking for answers. Yet, there are invariably those cases that firmly and unwaveringly cloak themselves in the shadows to refuse to be solved. Burrowing underneath enigmatic clues and strange circumstance to remain entrenched and hidden in mystery. One such infamous unsolved crime comes to us from the bloody days of World War II, an era that was really no stranger to death. Here we have the sad saga of an unidentified woman, seemingly from nowhere, whose lifeless form appeared within an eerie, spidery tree ensconced within a dark, haunted wood, her dead corpse holding mysteries and questions we have yet to unravel. It's a murder mystery surrounded by talk of witchcraft, spies, and other weirdness that seems destined to forever be a cold case we will never approach a fuller understanding of. It was in the midst of World War II, as bloody battles were being fought across faraway lands, that four local boys in the English Midlands would stumble across a rather horrifying sight in the Hagley Wood, in Worcester, near Birmingham, England. At around dusk on April 18, 1943, Robert Hart, Thomas Willits, Bob Farmer, and Fred Payne were trespassing on the private estate for the purpose of hunting for rabbits and looking for birds' nests, as boys are wont to do, right? Already nervous because they were certainly not supposed to be there, sneaking around, and also because the wood has a particular dark, sinister quality to it, perfect for seeding urban legends of wicked curses or hauntings, that all only got worse at night approaches. They would soon make a discovery that would go on to become a shocking and profound mystery still debated in some places to this very day. During their secret excursion, they came across a creepy-looking elm tree with branches that twisted up into the canopy like skeletal arms, reaching up almost as if in begging supplication to some dark god, and which was ominously called the Witch Elm. And that's spelled W-Y-T-C-H. Undaunted by the tree's creepy appearance in the encroaching gloom, one of the boys, 15-year-old Bob Farmer, climbed the tree to see if there were any nests to be found tucked away within the shadow-laced branches. As he poked about, he came to a murky hollow in the tree, from which peered the empty-eyed visage of a skull. 
The startled boy at first believed it to be the skull of some animal, but when it was dislodged and pulled out from its resting area, it became obvious that this was the skull of a human being, complete with unusually crooked human teeth and a wispy clump of hair that stubbornly clung to a rotting patch of flesh. The frightened boys quickly fled the scene and made up their minds not to tell anyone of what they had found, to leave that dark secret buried within that secluded tree. And so the discovery might have remained a secret forever, the skull rotting away there in the darkness as it always had, if it had not been for the youngest of the boys, Tommy Willets. The experience of seeing that obviously human skull stuffed into that eerie tree had touched a certain chord with the boy, and he didn't feel comfortable about keeping the whole affair a dark secret, unable to sleep due to the nightmares and mysteries that it followed it. After a while, he told his parents about what they had found out there in the secluded private wood, and the authorities were actually notified. What they would uncover would do little to shed light on the mystery, and indeed would only serve to deepen it. When police converged upon the scene, they found not only the skull exactly where the boys had claimed it had been, but also a more or less intact skeleton stuffed within the hollow. Upon the skeletal remains were worn-out crepe-soled shoes, as well as a gold wedding ring on the left hand, as well as some tatters of ragged, deteriorating clothing, with the tags seemingly purposely removed. Within the gaping mouth of the skull was lodged a piece of a type of woven cloth known as taffeta. Interestingly, the right hand of the body had been apparently completely sawed off, but it was soon found buried nearby. It was unknown why the hand had been removed and buried that way, but some ideas at the time were that it was perhaps indicative of some sort of ritualistic killing, or that some animal had nodded off and just buried it. The strange remains were sent in to the Home Office Forensic Science Laboratory for examination, where they were analyzed by a Professor, professor James Webster. He determined that they were from a woman who was probably around 35 years of age, who had irregular teeth, had probably given birth to at least one child, and who had been dead for approximately 18 months. As there were no signs of any traumatic injuries on the body, the cause of death was thought to be asphyxiation from the piece of cloth that had been stuffed into her mouth. It was also surmised that the body had been placed within the elm tree shortly after death or as the woman had been dying, and that she had recently had dental work done. Other than that, there was little evidence or information to go on as to the mystery woman's identity or who, or who could have done such a thing to her. A detailed search of missing persons cases turned up no sign of who it could possibly be, and scouring the dental records similarly proved to be futile, despite the fact that the mysterious skull had teeth with a very unusual, distinctive crookedness to them that should have made them easy to identify. The mysterious witch elm woman seemed to have simply come from nowhere. The only real clue forthcoming came in the form of a strange report from an unnamed executive of an industrial company. The man claimed that in 1941, about 20 months before the body had been found, he had been walking through Hagley Wood when he had come across the haunting sound of a woman screaming in the distance. 
the man soon passed another person who also claimed to have heard the eerie screams. Police were called in, but were unable to find any cause for the unexplained screams they had heard echoing through the murk. The investigation was further flustered by the fact that World War II had brought with it an influx of missing persons, which served to muddy the waters and made searching for answers difficult with the limited technology and resources available at the time. In the meantime, the media had picked up on the grim story and began to splash out headline after headline on the tree murder riddle, and there was talk of murder, shadowy cults, and black magic amongst the local populace. Indeed, the wood had long held whispered rumors of black magic cults slinking through the trees here, and the murder caused talk of human sacrifice and evil forest rituals. Nevertheless, as sensational as the macabre news of the apparent murder was, the people at the time had bigger threats to worry about, such as, well, being bombed during World War II. And so the tale of the witch elm soon was sort of forgotten, and the case eventually went cold. In 1944, the case picked up some more attention and bizarreness when some graffiti written in white chalk appeared scrawled on a building in the West Midlands town of Old Hill, which read, Who put Lubella down the witch elm? Similar spooky messages began to spring up over the area saying things like Hagleywood Bella, giving the same phrase only sometimes spelling Witch, W-Y-T-C-H, as Witch, W-I-T-C-H, or calling the woman simply Bella, and they all seemed to be in the same block handwriting. It all only served to reinvigorate the whole mystery. No one knew who was writing the mysterious graffiti, for what purpose, or if they had any connection to the unsolved murder, but the name given in the messages stuck, and the woman became widely known as Bella. Interestingly, these messages have sporadically popped up right up into modern times, and well-known examples being graffiti asking who put Bella in the witch elm, written upon the Witchbury obelisk and a cardboard placard placed in the Hagley Wood in 2016 asking the same question. As authorities search for the culprits of the murder and the graffiti artist in vain, theories as to what became of Bella began to swirl. One of the spookier ideas was put forth by Professor Margaret Murray of University College London, who was an eminent anthropologist and archaeologist, most well known for her controversial theories on witchcraft, having written several books on the matter and concocting quite a few far-out witch conspiracies along the way. Murray was convinced that Bella had been the victim of some form of black magic ritual, with one of her main pieces of evidence being that the removal of the hand was a hallmark of occult sacrifice, and that in such cases the removed hand was believed by the occultist to be a powerful magical artifact called a hand of glory. Other evidence that she claimed to be indicative of a ritual cult killing was the supposed witch belief that vengeful spirits of the murdered could be contained by simply placing the corpse within the hollow of a tree. There were also suggestions from Murray that Bella's death had a connection with another seemingly cultish murder in which a farmer named Charles Walton was found stuck to the ground with a pitchfork in the nearby village of Lower Quinton. For a while, the whole black magic and witchcraft angle of the killing once again caught on with the public's imagination, but there was no real hard evidence for any of it. 
Another theory that really took off in later years began with a letter sent to a journalist with the Wolverhampton Express and Star named Wilfred Byford Jones in 1953 from a woman who called herself Anna Claverly. The mysterious woman claimed in the letter to be privy to secret information concerning the Bella murder, namely that she had been caught up in a German spy ring that had been active in the Midlands in the 1940s due to the concentration of munitions factories located in the region during the war. Anna claimed that the spy ring was made up of a Dutchman, a foreign trapeze artist, and a British Army officer. According to Anna, Bella was in reality a Dutch woman named Clarabella Dronkers, who had been either the girlfriend or wife of a German agent and was killed and stuffed into the tree after learning too much of the operation. Police would eventually meet with the mysterious Anna and learn that her real name was in fact Uno Mosop, and her cousin Jack Mosop was one of the members of the purported spy ring who had helped in the murder of the woman before stuffing her into the tree out in Hagley Wood. According to Una, her cousin Jack would forever be plagued by nightmares of a woman's skull peering at him from the darkness of the tree hollow. Despite an investigation into these claims by both police and British intelligence organization MI5, no evidence was ever found to conclusively show that a spy ring had been behind the murders, and indeed no real evidence of a woman by the name of Clarabella Dronkers could even be turned up. Indeed, none of the alleged spies could be found, although it was not doubted that spies were active in the region, actually. However, it is interesting to note that this Dronkers is said to have had irregularly crooked teeth, is said to have been killed within the right time frame of events, and would have been around the same age of the victim at the time. Interesting. Other theories as to the mysterious murder also hinge on the spy idea. In 1941, a Czech agent of the Gestapo named Josef Jacobs was arrested for after covertly parachuting into Cambridgeshire, England. Authorities found on his person a photograph of a German cabaret singer and movie star named Clara Bauer. Under questioning, Jacobs would point to Bauer as being a Gestapo secret agent as well, mostly recruited for her ability to speak with a Birmingham accent and blend into the crowd and who was meant to parachute in and meet up with him later in the Midlands. Although she was fairly well known, Clara Barrel sort of dropped from the radar at about the same time, leading to speculation that it was actually her who ended up in the Witch Elm. Yet, if this was the case, it has never been satisfactorily explained how she would have ended up out in that tree in the private woodland of Hagley Wood, or who could have been the one to kill her, or even why. Barrel is also no, also thought to have been too tall to have been Bella, and she's often listed as having died in 1942, which doesn't fit in with the Witch Elm murders. We will probably never know for sure, and Jacobs was put to death by firing squad on August 15, 1941, holding the distinction of being the last person ever put to death in the Tower of London. His secrets would go to the grave with him, unfortunately. Other ideas as to the identity of the victim is that she was a murdered prostitute, 
a gypsy killed in some dark ritual, a barmaid who had been killed by a customer, or a woman who had been simply been hiding out in the woods trying to take shelter from the relentless German bombings and had run into trouble, either in the form of a murderer, rapist, or even wild animals. Yet none of these theories seem to really fit. No new evidence has really turned up, and over the years the case has actually gone cold as ice. All anybody can do at this point is speculate. Further hampering any potential investigation into the matter is the bizarre disappearance of the remains themselves. Shortly after the official investigation was closed in 2009, it was found that Bella's remains had vanished. It was later found that Dr. Webster had passed on the remains after his examination to be put through more tests at Birmingham University Medical School, but that but that at some time during this process, they had just inexplicably just disappeared. This has caused various conspiracy theorists to claim that there is some form of cover-up being put into effect, but what that could possibly entail remains unclear. All that's known is that their absence makes any DNA testing with modern methods a frustratingly impossibility, and provides further hurdles to ever getting to the bottom of the mystery. As of now, the remains remain missing. The mysterious murder of Bella of the Witch Elm has remained one of the most enigmatic and impenetrable unsolved murders out there. We still don't know who she was, where she came from, or how she even ended up in that tree. Since the remains are unaccounted for, and that everyone who could have had any direct relation to the crime is dead now, there is a very real possibility that this bizarre case will forever remain within the shadowy realm of speculation and imagination. We also have no idea who wrote the graffiti, why they did it, if they had any direct knowledge of what happened, or if they are just pranksters keeping the spooky legend alive. As for now, the tree itself has long rotted away, the remains still vanished, and the details of what befell this poor woman lost to the tides of time. The only thing that remains is the scrawled writing upon that obelisk that asks a question that continues to taunt and remain unanswered. Who put Bella in the witch elm? We may never know the answer to that, and the indecipherable question hangs, lodging itself within the psyche of those who would try to approach it. And with that, my darlings, we've come to the end of our episode. I thank you for joining me here today, and I hope you'll take some time to reach out to me. Share your thoughts on what you think. And as you know, you can always reach me and the show at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a suggestion for a future show, you just want to tell me what you think. Drop me a line. You're bored. Need somebody to talk to. I'm here for you because I do reply to every single email. And on that note, my darlings, that's all the time we have for you. I thank you for joining me here on Renegade Talk Radio. And you got it. Don't forget to tune in next time, my darlings. See you, my heathens. I love you. We don't sugarcoat shit. This is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.